Fruitopia, writing the future. Hello and welcome to the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. And in the spirit of working out how to communicate the climate crisis message, I'm talking today to Manda Scott. Manda is a long-time patron of the Sustainable Futures Report and has joined me previously, although that was a few years ago. Manda started off as a veterinary surgeon, becoming a midwife to racehorses, before switching to writing novels at the turn of the millennium. Her first novel was shortlisted for the Orange Prize, her most recent, the 14th, for the Saltire Award. More recently, she studied for an MA in Regenerative Economics at Schumacher College and went on to teach on the course for the next four years. She is host of the Accidental Gods podcast and co-creator of the Throotopia Masterclass. She's written a Throotopian television series and is working on a Throotopian novel. She believes absolutely that the creative power of humanity, if unleashed, has the capacity to avert near-term extinction and social collapse. In today's conversation, she explains more about what Throotopia is. That's Throotopia.life, T-H-R-U-T-O-P-I-A dot L-I-F-E. And she discusses a wide range of other issues as well. Uh, by the way, this was recorded a few days before the Masterclass was launched on the 1st of May. It's a six-month programme and all sessions are recorded, so you can still sign up now without missing anything, if you should decide to do so. Well, we're talking about communication, aren't we? Um, the I think the raison d'etre of the Sustainable Futures Report is communication. Yes, Getting, trying to get the message across, but it's so difficult, and um, it uh, nobody's actually found the silver bullet or the philosopher's stone or the answer. In other words, nobody has really got the world at large motivated to doing enough. Things have changed; more people are motivated, more is being done, but nothing like enough. And you've got a new initiative now called Throughtopia. So, explain to us, please. Well, that is Manda. We're taking your premise that you've just outlined and we're seeing where we can go with that because because the definition of madness is doing the same thing time after time and expecting a different result. And we who have been climate aware since the 80s have spent decades going, guys, guys, it's all really scary and it's getting scarier. And it doesn't work. I, I don't know, are you familiar with the GOES report, Global Oceanic Ecological Survey report from the Rosalind Foundation? No, I'm not. not okay, I am going to answer your question. But before we get to that, I just want to ask you a question. How long do you think we've got? And what is the most likely edge point trigger point? How long do I think we've got? I think we've got at least until 2050. But when I say we, I think that the population or parts of the population of the rich West will survive longest and some will survive to 2050. But I think there's going to be serious disruption throughout the world by the end of the, uh, by 2030, I'm afraid. And I think we're beginning to see this sort of thing because uh, 
energy shortages, food shortages are just beginning and they can only get worse, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I live on the edge of Wales. And the old thing about Wales was if you can see the hills, it's going to rain. And if you can't see the hills, it's already raining. And we haven't had rain in April. No, yeah, that is worrying. Month of showers. It, it, it's it's just the, whole, the whole of the United Kingdom actually has had a, an yep. unusually dry April. Um, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So I'm heading towards answering your question. But one of the things that really motivated me in this is the GOES report, which I will send you so you can link it. So everyone is familiar with the oxygen and the carbon cycles. If you have mitochondria, you take in oxygen, give out CO2. If you have chloroplasts, you take in CO2 and you give out oxygen. And these things have been in balance pretty much for the entirety of the Holocene, which is a very long time. The oxygen in our atmosphere is currently about 18%, one eight, and it's created by plants. What the GOES report highlighted for me that I hadn't really picked up on before is that 50% of the oxygen in the atmosphere is created by phytoplankton. So the little tiny single celled plants in the sea, this is a massive oversimplification, but, but phytoplankton create 50% of our atmospheric oxygen. A combination of acidification because of rising CO2 plus toxins, mostly nitrates from industrial agriculture runoff, but that was before our delightful government decided that the water companies didn't need to process sewage and Britain basically became an open sewer. So he heaven knows what now. And microplastics, these three together are wiping out the plankton. It's a very straight line down. And the GOES report assessment is that by 2045, the oceans will be dead. And that not only means an end to, for instance, the Gulf Stream, uh, another factoid that I picked up on the way through is that the, a lot of the Gulf Stream is created by sperm whales, which have the capacity, because this thing in their head, to dive very, 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 very deep. They scoop up huge amounts of what's on the ocean floor and they come up and they spit it out and they create a nutrient cycle that is also a temperature cycle, that is also a haline cycle, uh, a salt cycle, basically, that keeps the Gulf Stream going. No more sperm whales, no more Gulf Stream. So then we have a climate a bit like Norway, which will frankly be the least of our problems because if we have 50% oxygen, that's not a global north, global south thing. That's it's like standing at the top of Kilimanjaro at sea level. I don't know what happens then, but I don't think it's going to be good. And yeah, I think I don't even know if internal combustion engines work at 9% oxygen, for instance. And and that's 2045 when the assessment was made a couple of years ago. It can only have got worse since then. And nobody seems to notice this. You know, we know we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. We know that we're in the middle of greenhouse gas ocean, uh, sorry, global heating that's that's horrendous. But the oxygen component is something that I had really hadn't picked up on. And so we don't have until halfway through 2044 to turn this round. If we don't turn this round this decade, then those of us still alive by 2045 will be struggling to walk. And I don't, you know, what, what happens to the rest of the ecosystem if the ocean is dead? We don't know. And it's not an experiment that I wish to see happen. So, so we know that frightening people doesn't work, but that still scared me witless. It works for some of us, those of us who are trying to do something. But we still don't have the narrative of what to do. 
there's a lot of we need to cut back. We need to use less fossil fuels. It's obvious we need to stop using fossil fuels tomorrow. But what does the world look like if we do? What does it feel like? How does it work? And the crucial question, I think, is can we create roadmaps through to a future that feels like we'd like to get there? Because at the moment, most of us are imagining a future that's a kind of hybrid between the road and the handmaid's tale. You know, it's it's very, very bad, and we're all going to end up being kebabbed over piles of burning tires by our bigger and nastier neighbors. And that's the good part. You know, the rest is worse than getting getting worse after that. So if we can't, as human beings, look forward to something that we want to get to, then our default, and it's so deeply wired in our amygdalas, is to hunker down. It's without getting too deeply into polyvagal theory and the whole concepts of neurophysiology, it's very hard to think creatively when we're under sympathetic overload. Our sympathetic system is not designed for creative thinking, it's designed for getting away from the saber-toothed tiger. If the saber-toothed tiger is the climate and it's there all the time, then it's really hard to be imaginative. Imagination happens when we're in parasympathetic overload, or, or at least it has ascendancy over the sympathetic. So it seems to me that while we still have breathing space, because at the moment, you know, we're still breathing 18% oxygen, that technically, we might be able to grow something this year. Don't ask me next year, but this year, then I feel that as a writer, I have an absolute obligation, and I cannot think why it's taken me this long to realize it, to create visions of the very near future, that feel accessible and at, at least enticing enough that people who are not perpetually terrified by what's going on want to get to them. Because if you walk through the middle of our local city, which is Birmingham, the number of people who actually even recognize that there's a climate crisis happening is vanishingly small. We have a government that is creating perpetual sympathetic overload with people who are terrified of being able to heat their houses or you know, having to choose between having power and eating. And when you're in that kind of distress, thinking about the bigger picture doesn't happen and particularly thinking a way forward doesn't happen. So I think in many ways, it would have been good if we'd started this in the 80s instead of Mad Max and the road and the Handmaid's Tale if we'd been writing pathways through but they're hard. I'm writing a novel at the moment, which is this. And it, it grew out of the shamanic work. And I, I genuinely thought I'd stopped writing all novels. They were too slow. And I got what we might call a shamanic imperative to do this. And along with it was it needs not to be just me. There needs to be a lot of these. It needs to be that every time we turn the television on, we don't just get business as usual crime thrillers or yet another variant on some kind of costume drama set in the Halasson days of the 18th century when everybody knew their place and it was all hierarchical and amazing and people liked it, really. Um, we need to have narratives, stories that show people that we can recognize and empathize with doing amazing and wonderful things in a future that feels like you wake up in the morning and you're not stressed. You wake up in the morning and your daily life does not feel like you're destroying the planet or about to become destitute. Sorry, that was a very long answer. Did it make sense? Well, it certainly raises an awful lot of questions and ideas.
and a, a, a lot of dystopian views of the future, I'm afraid. So how is Thrutopia going to address this situation? So what exactly is Thrutopia? What is Thrutopia? Thrutopia is what we're calling it is a, it's a writing masterclass, but actually it's for all creators. We're getting puppeteers and, and animators and things coming along. It runs for six months. It starts on the 1st of May, every alternate Sunday evening UK time. We will have a speaker who comes in and the remit for the speakers is what does life look like in the 2030s in, in your specific field? We can talk about the fields in a minute. If we make the right decisions now, the good decisions now, and what are those decisions? If we make good choices now, we're wanting to get through the aim is to create roadmaps to a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. So each speaker is going to come in and they each have, you know, they're each people who focus on a specific topic. So transport, urban regeneration, food and farming, um, politics, economics, all of those things. Um, and, and obviously I could have picked an awful lot more than 13, but we're trying to create for writers. This is not a how to write because you can get that anywhere. This is a what to write, because what I've discovered trying to write the Thrutopian novel is if I had not been running the Accidental Gods podcast for the last two and a half years, I would have no clue even where to start looking at the things that are already happening now. My remit for the novel is I'm not bringing in any technology, social or physical technology that doesn't exist now. But what I'm doing is knitting them all together in a way that feels plausible to me and therefore I hope feels plausible to other people as a way forward. Because I think we, we have the answers. It's just that they're not knitted into a coherent narrative. And it still remains the case that it is easier to imagine the total extinction of humanity than to imagine the end of capitalism. And you know, capitalism is it's it's a made up thing. If we all decided we didn't like it, we could change it, but we have to decide what we want instead. And so what I'm trying to do is get enough writers to be writing the instead. How could we organize ourselves differently in a way that would feel good? And then, and what does it look like? And what are the steps to get there? And I think if I can create a generation of writers writing novels and movies and the next blockbuster Game of Thrones thing for Netflix and songs and poems and blogs and letters to the local parish newspaper and, and opinion editorials in the mail, about, hey guys, we don't have to default to what we do when we're scared, which is to attack the other tribes. Look, there are different ways of doing this and it gets us to a place that we would all want to go. How are you going to get the commissioning editors of the movies, of the uh, paper articles and, and so on and so on to accept this, which is very much divorced from business as usual, very much divorced from arguably what their readers and viewers want to consume. We have, along with the main speakers on Sunday evenings, I've got five people coming in to address that. So I've got the managing editor of a publishing house. I've got one of the Harry Potter producers. I've got an amazing theatre producer. I've got someone who produces indie films. All of these people coming in to for us to ask them that question. Okay, so we are writing this new genre, which you understand because I, Amanda Scott, have had lots of conversations with them, so I know that they do. 
in your field, you are embedded in, let's say, publishing, in, in a major UK publishing house, not here's my manuscript, please will you publish it? But if we're creating this new genre, how do you think we get it in front of the people who want it? Because I think there's a huge appetite out there for people, people don't know what we could do, and yet they want to, particularly anyone under 30. These are the ones who are either in outright denial because it's really too bad, or they are waking up and a friend of mine says she has pre-traumatic stress disorder of, you know, it's going to be very, very, very bad, but I don't know what to do. And I think if we create narratives of, hey guys, it doesn't have to be Mad Max meets Handmaid's Tale, there are better ways. We've got, humanity is extraordinary in our capacity for creativity if we have a vision towards which we are going. Everything that you and I have ever done, running the podcasts, you know, building a relationship, moving house, creating, taking a new job, all of them are because we built in our head ideas of what we thought it was going to be like. And I don't know about you, but in my life, it's never been like I imagined, never. But the imagining got me onto the path. And generally speaking, once I'm on the path, I mean, it's, it's amazing and brilliant. So I don't expect that the world will be exactly like what I'm writing, but it will give people ideas of what we can do. And the core of what we can do is we need to change our political and economic system. The existing one is utterly dysfunctional and we don't have the visions for how to change it. And we need to. So I am hoping, I think to answer your question specifically, if necessary, we set up our own publishing house because I think the market is out there. But I also think that once we've described it clearly enough, the publishers are there to make money at the moment. So they will, they will publish, I believe. I have a very interesting conversation with the lady who edits a publication called Muslexia, which goes out to women writers and people who want to be writers. And we have the, the lead cover article for June. And I, I spun it to her more or less as I spun it to you. And she went, everyone I know wants this. Yes, we want the, the answers. But it's the politicians. That's the next stage. I mean, just but the politicians are always followers. We don't have a single politician in, in the Western world at the moment who's, who's a leader. Well, with the possible exception of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez well, and a couple of her friends. They, they follow their the weather people. veins. They're following if, the wrong people, surely, at the yes, moment. Yes, but that's why we need to be writing the thing. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, they're following the Daily Mail comments section. Everything that our government in the UK does is to placate the Daily Mail comments section, which is, you know, and, and the more they do it, the further to the right it drifts. But, yeah, but, then but again, they're a tiny fraction of the population. But let's look then at the global perspective and people like Putin and uh, Xi Jinping. They don't follow, surely. They don't follow. Putin follows a guy called Alexander Dugan. Totally, yeah. And uh, we don't need to go into that. It's a really interesting and it's, it's, it's very accessible. His, his Dugan's view is he wants a Roman, uh, sorry, a Russian federation that stretches from Dublin to Vladivostok and that it is based on medieval principles because that's the last time that there was a proper white male theocratic supremacy. Um, well, that's a bit of a challenge things. to get over that, isn't it? I yes, mean... but we don't need to. And, you know, the number of people, yes, Putin pulls the strings. Yes, the people around him are completely and utterly barking, but they're a very small population. 
uh, as a, even as a percentage of the Russian population, if we can create, the problem at the moment is that people are becoming more tribal because they're afraid. And yeah. what we need yeah. is to give people a vision of things that can be different and the route to get there. Because then yeah. Putin yeah. and the others can do whatever the heck they like over in their corner if nobody is listening to them and nobody is following them and everyone is over here doing something different, particularly if we change the economic system. The only reason that people like Elon Musk have $44 billion to pay for Twitter is because the dollar, if we all go, you know what, dollars aren't worth anything anymore. A dollar is an idea. Yeah. Money yeah. is an idea. Yeah. We can change yeah. the idea. And if the alternative is extinction, we need to change the idea. Yeah. And if we Putin do, we no do. longer look, has look. anything that's valuable, he isn't a guy who can pull strings anymore. But yeah, but I mean, let's just go back to what you were saying about Putin and his his um, his clique, if you like. His it's mad a very mark. small group, but very small groups manage to run uh, complete states. We see this yes, in because we, Russia. Have very, we see it in China, we see it in North higher. Korea, and you know that whatever the people believe in in North Korea or in China or in Russia, and what they largely believe is what they've been told, and the yes. press and media are controlled, and you're not going to be able to get in there because they're going to block it. So how are we actually going to make a significant change? Because we, we've got to change, not the UK. We've got to change the no, world. No, we have to change the UK first, because that's where you and I are. There is right. no point in me focusing on Russia unless I can change the UK. If I can change the UK, I can change Europe. If I can change Europe, then Russia will notice. It's okay. You don't start with Russia, and you right, don't start. Right. So with tell China. me how we're going to change the UK, because I think by I creating that. visions of a different way of doing things, mm -hmm. by giving people, as you said, a small group of people can create radical change if they have a vision. You know, Putin, to his credit, has a vision. It's not his, but he's he's carrying through someone else's vision. It's very clear, and they know what they want, and they know how they're going to get there. So. We need to know collectively, and we don't want to do things in the hierarchical model. There's an amazing book, which I totally recommend everybody reads, called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow. And one, David Graeber, the late, very sadly, David Graeber, he's the guy who wrote Debt, The First 5,000 Years, uh, and Bullshit Jobs. He was an amazing thinker. He was a social anthropologist. David Wengrow was an archeologist. They had a 10-year conversation and the original question was, how does inequality arise in humanity? Because you know, there was a point when you know, it depends how far back you go and it depends what your vision is, but we were not always in this desperate hierarchical situation. They realized after a year that they were asking themselves the wrong question. The question was, how did Western, what we, we call the weird Western educated industrial rich democracies end up in extraordinarily insane hierarchical systems where basically the kleptomaniac psychopaths get to the top and are promoted to the top and then are able to suck the value out of the remaining 99%. When all around the world, for the rest of human history, other cultures have created highly advanced cultures that have managed not only not to do that, but to create social technologies that deliberately meant that that could not possibly happen. And they, they go through in the book, the, 
the various cultures and their ways of attaining this. And it was one of those books, I don't know about you, but I quite often read books where they take an idea that I already know and fill in a few of the gaps and expand my thinking a little bit. And then the occasional book just goes, okay, everything you thought you knew, forget it. Totally wrong. And and here, look, here we've done the research is something completely different. Because I had wandered along with the concept that hunter-gatherer tribal communities were quite small and quite egalitarian because when you're hunting and gathering, foraging, hunting, and you're not accumulating stuff, then it's very difficult to have a hierarchy. That at the point when agriculture started and we began to hoard stuff, then hierarchies arose. And I think it was Yuval Noah Harari who said that, you know, the worst possible thing that ever happened was the first guy who put up the first fence and said, this land is mine. But what Graeber and Wengro showed is that, that that's totally not the case. All my ideas of kind of human anthropology, social anthropology particularly, were utterly wrong. And that it's entirely possible. Humanity has in the past, and therefore I believe could in the future, create systems of interacting between and amongst ourselves that are not the pyramidal hierarchies that we have at the moment where the psychopath kleptomaniacs get to the top and then destroy everything for the people underneath them. We don't need to organize like that. But what we need then is models and stories and narratives of how it looks and feels when we're not organizing like that. Because if we stay in the mindset of we have to change Putin's mind or the world is sunk, then the world is sunk. We may as well just string ourselves up from a light fitting now because that's not going to happen. But if we can create a pathway through to where an entire nation, and I would say, to be honest, I would start with Scotland because it's a lot further along the way than England is at the moment. It only takes small places to start. I've got a couple of friends who were with me on the Masters in Regenerative Economics at Schumacher, and they are now, they are Israeli. And two people making dramatic change in a small country, they're already significantly changing the way things are done. And it's it's amazing to watch and it's a lot of it's happening under the radar. I don't want to talk about it too much because because there are people who would stop it, step on it. But it's possible. There are a couple of people that I know well in Scotland who at the start of lockdown started as many conversations as they could with people as diverse as they could in political sense in order to set the ground for a people's assembly which would set the ground for a citizens' assembly, which would set the ground for a constitutional convention to create an entirely new democratic system for an independent Scotland. That work is happening. It's, we need to then create the narratives so that ordinary people for whom the word people's assembly, citizens' assembly and constitutional convention mean nothing, to see that there are ways forward. Everybody knows that the current system is broken. There isn't a single person with the possible exception of the current cabinet that doesn't think that our current political system is wholly dysfunctional and not fit for purpose. What we don't have is models of what could create, could replace it. So I think that it's up to writers to create the difference. I'm just going to read you, if I can find it, you might need to edit out my gap, a quote from uh, Amitaj Ghosh, Who's, uh... So this is Amitash Ghosh. When future generations look back upon the great derangement, they will certainly blame the leaders and politicians of this time for their failure to address the climate crisis. But they may well hold artists and writers to be equally culpable. For the imagining of possibilities is not, after all, the job 
of politicians and bureaucrats. And it is our job and we haven't been doing it. And you know, it's, I've been focused on this for decades and I've been writing historical novels because I thought, you know, if I could show people how we were, they would, it would be what they would become. That was the entire premise of the Boudicca series. And 20 years down the line, I'm thinking, oh, why did I ever think that? Why have I not been writing what we would now call a Thrutopia? But anyway, I'm starting now. I don't think it's too late because we need, we need to give people the ideas, not only of where we might go, but of exactly how they get there. And we probably need more, we definitely need more than one vision. My vision will be mine and it will infuse, I hope, a few hundred thousand people, but there need to be other visions and others and others. So that, but they're all coalescing on broadly the same place, which I imagine the commonalities will be the value system that we bring to it. And, and our understanding that he who dies with the most toys wins is not a useful concept and it doesn't actually help anyone to feel any better about themselves. And the people who are joining the Thrutopia Masterclass presumably will include journalists uh, whose lead time oh, is I very wish. much shorter. I so wish. I, I don't, I'm not aware of any journalists joining yet. If there's any journalists listening and you want to come, please. That would be very good. I think we've got a number of podcasters whose time is even shorter and who also don't have sub-editors to have to negotiate. Um, so, you know, of course, I would be delighted if a couple of Daily Mail journalists turned up, but what are the chances? Um, I'm hoping the Mislexia article might reach journalists because I think quite a lot of them read that. Who knows? Okay. And the whole thing starts on, on Sunday, in fact. the, the Sunday 1st of May, yes. But we're recording everything. So, yes. so if you don't, yeah, this probably won't be out by then, but people are still welcome to join for sure. And okay, as much well, as anything, the, the, I want this to be a think tank. This won't yes. be out until the 4th of May, so, but it won't be too late for people if they want to. Definitely up. not. No, 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 absolutely. You'll only have missed one. Mm. Um, 7th of May, we've got Sharon Blackie, who's a mythologist coming to talk about the heroic journey and that cycle and how we can take the structures of that and build them into something different and bigger. One of my big questions always has been, since I was teaching at Schumacher, was is the heroic journey so deeply embedded in our in our psyches that we have to follow that? Or is there another model? And if so, what is it? Do you have a message for people who are not creators, who are not writers and cannot take part of uh, within the, this masterclass, but probably are the targets uh, for those who do take part? What is the message that you hope the people participating in Thrutopia will share with their audiences? So two things. First of all, we've got quite a lot of not writers who have joined up because they want to be part of the thinking process. So just because you have no intention of ever putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard doesn't mean you can't join because as much as anything, this is a think tank to create the ideas for the stories that lead us forward. So. So come anyway, if it appeals to you. Um, and if not, then I will be putting out a lot of links towards the end, so ends 16th of October, or at least in this iteration, of the people who are on it and the stories that they are creating. I genuinely believe that there is still a pathway to a generative future. It's narrowing by the day, but I believe that if we can get the stories, the narratives, the roadmaps of how to get there, and it feels like a place that enough of us want to go, then the whole 
weight of human creativity will be brought to bear on this and we can make it happen. And then the idiots in charge, you know, Johnson and Putin and probably Trump again in the States if Musk gets his way, become utterly irrelevant. They're only people. There's one one last thing. This is quite a fun thing. So if you put one finger on your nose and stretch out your arm, then in the old days, when the king did that, that was a yard. I've always wondered what happens when it was Henry VI and he was three months old, in very small yards. But anyway, that's a yard. But if you take that instead as an indication of the length of time since the formation of the earth, and then you sweep the middle finger of your outstretched hand across the nail file, you have just erased the entirety of all human history, not just written history, all human history. And we are facing an extinction moment where all of that might go. And we can either work out a way through it that lifts people into something that is better, or we can accept extinction. And of those two, I'm going for the first one. And given that nail file moment, everything that we take to be fixed in stone, like our political system and our economic system, are all ideas and agreements that we make between ourselves. We can have new ideas, we can make new agreements. None of this is static. It's not laws of physics. It can change if we want it to change and if we know what we need it to change to. So anybody listening, think what you want it to change to. Think forward to the 2030s. How would the world be if you woke up every morning and you knew deep inside that the world was a safe and good place where you could feel confident and secure and connected? And working back from that, how did you get there? Amanda, thank you very much for sharing your ideas with the Sustainable Futures Report. I think we're going to have to follow you up later on in the year and see how things have developed as uh, as your masterclass sure uh, continues. But uh, thanks again. That'd be great. Thank you. Amanda Scott. Links to the books, reports and podcasts she mentioned can all be found on the Sustainable Futures Report website at the end of this piece. As I mentioned... Manda is one of the original patrons, and we'll hear another view from another patron next week. I'm also looking for a patron who's an expert on mining for a future episode. If that's you, but you're not a patron yet, just hop across to patreon.com SFR, and you'll find the details there once you've signed up. Patrons are the lifeblood of the Sustainable Futures Report, keeping it independent and ad-free. I'm most grateful to you all. So that's it until Friday, when I shall bring together a lot of loose ends and ideas and stories which have popped up since Easter. That was the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report with Manda Scott of Throughtopia.life. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time. (music) 